reading from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 to 24. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although you can gain your freedom. If you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Well, I wish that I could tell you that when you become a pastor, an amazing thing happens and that you practically become sinless and all your impure motives leave you and you never think that the grass would be greener somewhere else, whether it's in a relationship or in your ministry or that kind of thing. You know, that grass is greener idea that if I change my circumstances, it would make my life better. And a couple of years ago, I got a phone call from a pastor in Adelaide asking me if I would consider applying for a lead pastor role at this hub church within their network of churches. And this church, it was strategically placed to be a church that would be heavily invested in so that it could, out of that church, plant a number of other churches in the region. And when I got off the phone, I wish I could tell you that the first thing I did was pray. I wish I could tell you that I turned immediately to meditate on the word of God or I went into a network of relationships asking for wisdom. What I immediately did was turn to my computer and type in domain.com and I began to look up houses in the suburb where this church was located. And you know what I found in the search? Well, we could sell our house at Mount Hutton and for cheaper, we could buy this huge new brick place with multiple bedrooms and bathrooms and a media room and had this beautiful outlook. Next, I turned to the climate in the region. It was a little bit colder, but as a pasty ringer, it had a lower UV index and it had rural kind of more stable climate. And I'm someone who loves change. So I began to explore all the different experiences that you could have in this place and nearby places and what kind of coffee shops did they have and activities around the region. And then I began to envision what the ministry would be like there. It was a region with a much smaller population, which means probably being in a ministry with a much smaller church. Wouldn't that be lovely? Kind of pastoring a church where you can know everyone much more intimately. And then, of course, the people of the church. Well, this church wouldn't have any sinners in it, would it? It would be an easy and comfortable church to lead. And, of course, it would be the kind of church where, you know, relationships would just develop overnight. You just build that connection instead of the, the couple of years deep relationships normally take to develop when you change cities. It's a common trap for all of us, isn't it? Even pastors. The temptation to believe that the grass will be greener if we change our external circumstances. And more and more, it seems for Australians, changing our external circumstances is the air that we breathe. 
Australians are actually among some of the most mobile people in regards to our geography in the world. 15% of Australians move every year. 40% of Australians change the address they live at every five years. Generation Alpha, which is kids born between 2010 to 2024, they're predicted to be facing a workforce where they'll change jobs 18 times and careers six different times. A recent study by the National Australia Bank suggests about 20% of Australians changed their jobs in the last year. Why? What were the deep kind of underlying reasons for those changes? For the pursuit of a greater purpose, fulfillment, contentment, and a better work-life balanced lifestyle. It was the pursuit of the grass being greener by changing my external circumstances for many people. And in this passage, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 17 to 24, Paul reminds us that as Christians, our worldly external circumstances, things like our jobs, our relationships, they pale in comparison to living for Jesus and the new creation. And doing that in whatever worldly external circumstances we find in is the priority for a Christian. Now, throughout chapter 7, Paul is essentially unpacking what it looks like to live for Jesus in a bunch of different relationship statuses. You know, if you're married to a believer, this is what it looks like. If you're married to an unbeliever, this is what it looks like. If you're not married, if you're betrothed or pledged to be married, if you're widowed or divorced, he's unpacking all of those complex relationships. And throughout chapter 7, there's actually this nuanced principle that holds the whole passage together. And it's this principle in verse 17 to 24 that he's really explicit about. It's the theological kind of center to the whole passage of chapter 7 in this passage. And Paul's broad principle is generally throughout this whole chapter is whatever relationship status you find yourself in when you become a Christian, remain in it. Your Facebook status in terms of your relationship shouldn't be changed too much. Now, let me show you how this principle is actually at work throughout chapter 7 before we get into verses 17 to 24. So have a look down at your Bibles in verse 8. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Remain as you are. Or look at verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. Remain as you are. But if she does, she must remain unmarried, remain as you are, or else be reconciled to her husband. Or if you look down at uh, verse 26, because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is, remain as you are. Or look to verse 39, a woman is bound to a husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies and that status changes, she's free to remarry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. He must be a Christian. But look at the principle in verse 40. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. Remain as you are. Now, there are some commands in the Bible that are absolute. For example, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not commit any act of sex outside of marriage between husband and wife. Love God with every part of yourself. They're kind of absolute commands. This is not really one of those. This is more of a principle to remain as you are with some complexity and some exceptions to actually how we work that out. But if you're married, Paul's big principle is stay married, remain as you are. If you're single, stay single, but with nuances and complexity. 
And the biggest thing we, I think he wants us to understand from these verses is that there is actually something more important than our relationship status or our worldly external circumstances. There's a bigger perspective to grasp that actually guides all decisions and impacts how we live through our worldly circumstances. Now, in verses 17 to 24, the structure is actually really helpful, as Paul kind of outlines it. Essentially, three times he hits the principle in verse 17, 20, 24. And then in between the principle, he deals with two examples to kind of flesh out the principle for us. So principle one is circumcision, or example one in um, verse 18 to 19 is circumcision, uncircumcision. And example two in verses 21 to 23 is slave and free. And so what we're going to do is just really think about the principle in those three key verses, look at those two examples, and then apply it into our lives today as Christians. So have a look at verse 17 as Paul begins kind of unpacking this principle really explicitly. He says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Now, each person, not some people, but each and every individual, he says, should live as a believer, as a Christian, as someone who follows Jesus, as someone who knows they are washed and sanctified and justified. They should live as a believer in whatever worldly circumstances the Lord has assigned to them. Even our worldly circumstances, our station in life is under the sovereign hand of God here. He says that it's assigned to us. In God's sovereignty, he's assigned you a relationship status. He's given you a job or lack thereof. He's given you a geographical place in which you live. He gifts all of those things to us. They are a gift, whatever worldly circumstance we're in. But the emphasis he places here in this verse is in whatever worldly circumstance you're in, you should live as a Christian in that circumstance if you are one, just as God has called us to. And notice this isn't contextual just for the Corinthians, but this is the rule he says he lays down in all the churches. This is for every single Christian. Now have a look at verse 20 as he speaks of remaining in these worldly circumstances. Verse 20 says each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And again in verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person as responsible or accountable to God, knowing we're going to face God, you should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So Paul's principle for all Christians, his default, our default posture is to remain in whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever worldly circumstance, when God called us to be Christians. Remain as you are with the priority of living out your identity in Christ. Now, this is where the language of calling becomes really significant for us to understand. And Paul uses it a lot in these verses. Some people think that God calls us and they use that language of calling because they think God calls us to specific worldly circumstances like human relationships or a particular job or a particular geography. So God is calling me to marry her or I feel called by God to to move to Adelaide or Tam Vegas, wherever it is, or I feel called by God to become a pastor. And sometimes tied up in this thinking is kind of the language of open doors. So God is opening doors for us to move here or there or that kind of thing. But it's interesting that when the Bible uses the language of calling, it always refers to two broad categories. 
We've been called in regards to God's effective call in saving us through the gospel. God's called us. He saved us. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And another kind of broad category is our response to that salvation by the grace of God. And so in light of who we are as God's saved people, we're called to live out that identity, called to be his holy people. We're called to live a life worthy of the gospel. We're called to live out our new creation identities that we've already received in Christ. When Paul uses the language of calling, he's talking about being called as Christians and living out that calling, not specific worldly circumstances. And so what Paul is emphasizing here in 1 Corinthians 7 is that this calling from God to live as a Christian is more important than whatever worldly circumstances you're in, whatever social status you have, whatever our world values, all of that pales in comparison to living as a Christian. Changing your social status doesn't make you more pleasing to God. It's not going to make you any more fulfilled or content in Christ. The grass isn't going to be greener by changing our external circumstances because we already have everything we need in Jesus. Christ is enough. God is all we need. And so then he widens kind of the principle beyond relationship status with the two examples he goes in to talk about in regards to circumcision, uncircumcision and slavery and freedom. Have a look at the first example in verse 18 to 20. He says, was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, when he was saved? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them or saved them. Now, the elephant in the room with this passage is once you've been circumcised and had the foreskin snipped off, how can you become uncircumcised again? Now, I don't know. Apparently, commentators say there might have been a surgery or other commentators talk about athletes competing in the nude and some people drawing their foreskins back on. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. Paul's saying circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't ultimately matter. It means nothing. Now, it's hard for us to imagine the horror with which a fellow Jew would have responded to what Paul says here. For not only did circumcision count for the Jew, it counted for everything as a representation for living out all of God's commandments. And Paul takes one of the great religious divisions in his day, Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, and he says, once you're in Christ, it doesn't matter. No, what matters, he says, is keeping God's commands. That's what counts. And applying that into relationships in chapter 7, he's saying if you're married, that's great. If you're single, that's great. What matters more than those relationship status, though, is keeping God's commands in the context of these passages of fleeing sexual immorality and pursuing holiness. Keeping God's commands is what counts. And that, that becomes this, this primary lens which Christians therefore view all our worldly circumstances through. Does this worldly circumstance that I'm in help me to keep God's commands? 
Does it help me to love God and love others better? The New Testament kind of summary for what the law and God's commands are. Now, Paul says a similar thing as what he says here in 1 Corinthians 7 in Galatians as well, when he says, For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Our union with Christ changes everything. Our relationship with Jesus changes everything. Circumcision, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter anymore. In 6.15, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything or counts is the new creation. And so as Christians living out God's love, the gospel, the new creation, they're the things that count now. Your call to salvation and receiving your new creation identity matters more than anything else in this world. And living out that calling by showing sacrificial love, making disciples, preaching the gospel, glorifying God with our godliness in everything we do, that is what counts now. That is more important than good worldly responsibilities and statuses, whether it's relationships, whether it's a job you do, where you live, whatever it is. Now, if that isn't radical enough, then he turns for his second example to the idea of slavery and free. Have a look at verse 21. He says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Now, the elephant with the room in this one is is Paul endorsing slavery here. And I don't think he is. In other parts, he actually goes to push against slavery of the Bible. And it was Christians who fought for the abolition of the transatlantic slavery, where slavery became attached to race and people were treated inhumanely. But Paul is writing into a context in Corinth where it's estimated that a third of people were already slaves. And another third of people were former slaves, but now free. And for many people, they actually sold themselves into slavery. They chose to enter slavery, a little bit like what we do when we enter kind of a mortgage for a house. If you think you're so free and you have a mortgage, try not paying your mortgage and see how free you are. But these people, they will become slaves to work and provide uh, for themselves and their family. And so slaves in Corinth, they were, they were doctors, they were teachers, they were managers and so on. Now, in some cases, slavery... Uh, And slaves were mistreated horribly and abused, which God clearly condemns in his word. But it's in the midst of that context that Paul says, were you a slave when you became a Christian? Don't let it trouble you. Don't sweat it. Now, how radical is that? He says, what's more important is living for Jesus within that circumstance. And I think this can be incredibly liberating for a number of us who feel like our worldly circumstances restrict us in serving Jesus. Because what Paul is saying here is that if you feel restricted by your worldly circumstances, even in the midst of that, you can live for Jesus just like any Christian. If you feel restricted in your singleness, if you feel restricted by finances, if you feel restricted by poor health, well, then you need to know No matter how tough or difficult your circumstances may feel, they don't define you. And your ability to serve and honour and live for God is not determined or diminished by those circumstances. Now he goes on to say, slaves, if you can gain your freedom, by all means do so. And this is where the rule isn't absolute. If you can change your status and you you can gain your freedom, go for it. There's nothing wrong with that. You haven't sinned. So if you're single and you get married, 
that's okay. Go for it. You haven't sinned in that. But just don't think this great change in social status or relationship status or worldly status, these things that matter to the world, is going to change one bit how God already views you in Christ. Later in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, We were all baptized, all Christians, by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. In Christ, by his spirit, we've all been baptized or immersed into his body, the local church. We've all been made new to be able to drink now from that one spirit, the living water of eternal life. That is who we are when we put our trust in Jesus, no matter our worldly status, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. And Paul goes on to expand on this identity we are to have in verse 22 of chapter 7. He says, For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. And similarly, or paradoxically, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. He says, Whether you're a slave in this world or you're free in this world, don't get caught up in the stuff of this world. It ultimately doesn't matter. Your status has been radically changed as a Christian in a way that truly matters. You're a Christian. And as a Christian, you're simultaneously free in Christ and a slave of Christ. Christians, we belong to Him. We belong to Jesus and we're to obey Him as our Lord, following His commands, living for Him as our Master. And paradoxically, Paul says that's actually the path to true freedom. That's the path to true peace and contentment and life to the full. That's where the grass is greener. In Christ. And so it's less important about whether you're a slave or not, but who you are a slave to. It's more important about the character of your master and your Lord. Is your master or Lord a human relationship? Do you have an idol of marriage? Do you have an idol of a worldly status or of a job? Or is your master Jesus? Because look at what kind of Lord, look at what kind of master Jesus is in verse 23. Paul says, you were bought at a price. Remember this. This Lord, this master, he laid down his life for you. He He spilt his own blood for us on the cross. Despite our sin, this Lord is the best. He first served us giving his own life as a ransom so that by his grace alone, What do we get in return? We get an eternal relationship with him. We get peace with God, the path of true freedom. So Paul says, this is who you are. You're slaves to Christ. You're bought at a price. You belong to him. So verse 23, don't become slaves of human beings. Don't become slaves to human relationships, thinking that marriage and singleness is the be all and end all or whatever worldly status. Don't become slaves to anything in this world. If you have a look over to verse 31, he says, Don't become engrossed the things of this world, for this world or things of this creation, of which marriage is a part of, this world in its present form, they're going to pass away. Friends, when you become enslaved to this world, citizens of this world, they love this world because for them there's nothing else. So let us eat, drink or be merry because tomorrow 
Nothing else is going to happen. There's nothing else to do. And so living for money or living for career or living for lifestyle becomes the best that this world has to offer. But in Christ, there's so much more on offer. In the new creation, there's no married or unmarried because we're all married to Christ, our good Lord. There's no Jew, Gentile, slave or free, doctor, lawyer, rich or poor, for Christ is all and is in all and we are all in him. And so, friends, this shapes our motivations and our lifestyles. We live not by this creation anymore, but motivated by the creation to come, the new creation. And so verse 24, Paul comes back to his default position. Brothers and sisters, each person is responsible to God. Remain in each situation they are in when God called you. Stay within whatever worldly circumstance you're in. It's more important that you live as a Christian in whatever worldly circumstance that you're in. And so in a world where change is the air we breathe, <laughs> this is a radical principle, a radical kind of mindset for us to, to uphold. It's easy, even as Christians, to drift into that grass is going to be greener over there mentality, isn't it? Or this kind of if-only type of thinking, if I only do this, this external change, life will be better. Now, that was the problem in my heart when I looked at domain and looked at houses and the climate and the experience that was all worldly thinking and kind of getting caught up in this, well, if I make these worldly changes, life is going to be so much better. Friends, that is Satan lying to us. And there's so many kind of ways that this, this plays out in our thinking, isn't it? You know, where we live. If only I change location to that beautiful part of the world, then I'll be content and life will get sorted. Or jobs. If only I get that promotion or I change jobs, then there wouldn't be any conflict in the new workplace or there no bureaucracy there or make my work-life balance easier. Or we bring that kind of if-only thinking into parenting. If only I was out of the rugrat stage or out of the nappy stage or the two-year-old tantrum stage, then we'll be trouble-free when the kids reach adolescence, right? Or we bring that if-only thinking into a housing. If only I owned a house, I could make it more welcoming, more of a home. Or if only I didn't have this health condition, then I'd be able to serve God better. Or if only I change churches, then I won't be sinned against or I'm going to have deeper relationships at the next church. Or if only I was married, I'd feel more fulfilled and less lonely. Or if only I wasn't married, I'd have less of a headache. Or if, if only I was married to a better person. Or if only I, I had a little affair with that person, then I'd feel more content, more valued, more appreciated. See, the problem with the grass is greener kind of mentality or the if only kind of thinking is that nine out of 10 times the problems we face in this world are due to the brokenness of this world and the brokenness within my heart. And so when we change our worldly circumstances in this world, we bring our broken selves with us and we find ourselves in a new broken situation in this world. The Australian Bureau of Statistics have stats in 2020 for divorce rates. And while only 30% of first-time marriages end in divorce, it's 60% of second marriages who have already had a divorce that will end in divorce. People who believe the lie, changing that status is going to fix the problem, but we're actually just bringing our broken selves into it. You can't get rid of, you can get rid of the external circumstances, but you, you can get rid of a spouse 
But that doesn't change the problem within us or the broken world out there. Only Jesus can do that. We need to remember that changing our external worldly circumstances isn't going to make us more fulfilled. And for Christians, it certainly won't make you any more appealing or acceptable to God. That's all been done in the work of Christ, not by our works. And so in light of our relationships in 1 Corinthians 7 and the complex relationships, what Paul is saying here really is that being married or single is of no eternal significance. You're not more or less of a person if you're married. You're not more Christian or less Christian if you're single. It's an eternal insignificance. And the peace of God is not found in things of this world. True freedom and contentment is found only in Christ and living for the new creation. Friends, you can't get any more appealing to God than the washing and the new identity that you've already been given through Jesus' death. So what counts now for Christians is living out what we've already been called to be, going all in for Jesus in whatever worldly circumstance we are in now. And so Paul says as a default, remain in whatever worldly circumstance you are when you became a Christian. Sure, you can change there's, and there's wisdom in changing, but what's of more importance and more significance than changing our worldly status is our calling to live out the salvation we have in Christ to live out that calling, living lives worthy of the gospel in whatever situation we find ourselves. Now, just to finish, <clears throat> it's helpful again to point out that this is a principle, not an absolute command. And Paul even says there's some freedom and exceptions for this principle. So as a slave, if you have the opportunity to gain your freedom, then do so. It doesn't really matter. But other examples in chapter 7 of this kind of exception is verse 8. So to the unmarried and widows, remain as you are unless you can't control your sexual desires. Then there's an exception. Go and get married. That's fine. Or verse 12 to 13, if you're married to an unbeliever, remain as you are. But then again in verse 15, if the unbeliever chooses to leave, then that's okay. You're not bound to that relationship anymore. You're bound to the peace of God to live out his commandments. Or verse 39 to 40, if you're a widow, remain as you are. But you're still free to marry as a Christian if you want. Just think you'd be happier if you remain as you are, he says. Now, sometimes we'll need to change circumstances as a matter of obedience to Christ. For example, if we're in an adulterous worldly circumstance, then there is a clear command that you need to repent and get out of that worldly circumstance. But what this principle is actually, Paul's more applying this into is times in the realm of kind of wisdom. We actually might have two good options before us, remain single or move into marriage. Two good options for which we might decide. And the mindset we're to have in making those decisions where we could change location and we've got the freedom to do those kind of things, put the new creation first and foremost, prioritise the gospel. Is changing your worldly circumstance going to help you live for Jesus better? That's the key question here. And the legalist in all of us, <clears throat> who we like neatness and clarity that absolute commands bring, kind of want us to, to narrow this down in what does this actually mean in a concrete application for my life? But friends, the nature of living in a complex world with complex relationships 
is that this kind of principle could be lived out very differently for different people in different circumstances. And how I'll pass to someone might change in this circumstance compared to this circumstance. So it's hard to generalize neat and tidy, concrete, absolute kind of applications. But the principle and the mindset is really clear here. Make decisions about kind of external worldly circumstances by prioritizing the new creation. God lo God's love, living lives worthy of the gospel and everything we do. And so just some more thoughts on what that looks like actually in practice <clears throat> and how I kind of, I think I see people making wrong or unwise decisions in this regard. And the first one is just identifying in our hearts when we're drawn to worldly motives instead, instead of kingdom motives. So it's exactly where I would drifted in terms of thinking about Adelaide immediately to the worldly kind of motives to make a change as opposed to the kingdom motives to make a change. And when we slowed down and actually talked to people and prayed about it and meditated on the Word of God, we asked the question, will this change actually help us serve God and His kingdom better? And the conclusion, an imperfect conclusion under God and with other people that we came to is no. And so we remain as we are here in Mount Hutton. The other thing is when we make decisions, a way not to do this is make decisions because of discontentment. That is a very, very um, dangerous kind of position to be in. You know, oh, my current job sucks and I'm really not enjoying it, so I'm going to go find a new job. And so that's the primary motive for why we're making a change. But be very careful thinking there that the grass is going to be greener because often it won't. You're taking yourself and into another broken environment there. Another way I see this is when people move church for a job. And I'll ask the question, oh, what church are you going to serve Jesus with at this new place? And the person will answer, I haven't thought about that yet. And that's when alarm bells start going. Because again, that's reflective of a person who's not prioritizing the kingdom. And thinking about, well, what's the opportunity I'm going to have to serve Jesus in the way God has designed us as part of a body of Christ in a local church to be on mission? When people have decisions like that and they've made it themselves and they haven't sought the wisdom of godly people, they trust to help them. That is a recipe for pride and individualism and a recipe to be prioritizing things of this world. And so how we make wisdom decisions in this kind of complex world is really important. Complex decisions require us to slow down. And the more complex a decision, the more we want to depend on God in prayer, the more we want to meditate on his word and identify our impure motives that we bring to every decision. And the more we want to involve godly members of our church, people we trust to point us to Jesus in the process to soundboard and kind of refine us, rebuke us gently, and to love us by pointing us to Jesus. Now, sometimes I reckon there's great reasons to change jobs, change locations, change relationship status. When we do make those change, we want to make sure we're holding loosely to the things of this world, holding loosely to, to how much we think marriage is going to satisfy us or holding loose to how much a job is going to fulfill us or, or how engrossed we want to not be engrossed in things of this world. We might change to flee from sin and that can be really good. 
or we might be given opportunities that we do think actually free us up more to serve Jesus' kingdom. And so there might be a change in job where we go, actually, that change in job is going to help us disciple the kids even more. Or actually, that change in job is going to help us be able to commit to coming and encouraging and serving other Christians to point them to keep living for Jesus. Or a change here is going to increase our opportunity to invest in the gospel and the new creation without us becoming enslaved to things of this world. If it helps you live for God's kingdom more, then go for it. (laughs) But just don't think that the change in worldly status is going to change your relationship with God. Now, living for God's kingdom, that's the priority. That's the thing that shapes how we make decisions about our worldly circumstances. Am I obeying him? And will this help me live for him as his slave? Because ultimately, I belong to him. Let's keep being a people who make these decisions for the glory of God. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that in Christ, you've given us a new identity, that you've washed us and made us clean and made us righteous all because of your grace. And we thank you that in your sovereignty, you've given us the gift of worldly circumstances where we have opportunities to serve you in different jobs, in different fields, in different relationships. And we know that you are in control of those things. But we thank you that as you called us, you gave us an identity and a role that is more important than things of this world. You gave us an identity and role where we get to live for you and live for the new creation. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who continue to prioritise that, continue to prioritise your gospel, and that we would live as Christians in whatever worldly circumstances you placed us in and serve you and follow you and obey you as slaves of Christ, knowing that as we obey you, you've given us the path to true freedom and eternal life in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.